on discouragement. I believe that the reason that Paul writes the letter of 2 Thessalonians is that there was a wave of discouragement that had made its way through this church. Some of it had to do with, of course, the persecution and the suffering that they were facing. Some of it also had to do with the fact that they had adopted a false doctrine that was, well, not filled with hope. And uh, we looked at that last week. We, we noted that end times problems tend to also lead to hope problems in the life of the believer. Now, I want you to think about discouragement for a moment. I would submit to you this morning that one of the most difficult obstacles in life to overcome is the obstacle of discouragement. Uh, Even something like opposition, something where someone is contesting you in some sort of way, while that can be extremely difficult, nothing will bring your life to a grinding halt. Like a complete loss in confidence of who you are, what you are doing, and especially what you have believed in. Even the strongest amongst us, the people that we look at and say, surely they would never fall susceptible to discouragement, they fall susceptible to it. I was thinking of um, the Olympic team, the 5,000 meter speed skating relay team from the 2002 Olympic Games. Apollo Ono was a part of that team, and um, he was really positioned in 2002 to have uh, several gold medals in this particular sport. When the relay team had set off and went into the motion, this highly favored American team was doing pretty well until one of the teammates fell. Now, the fall uh, was pretty quick. They were down for a matter of a second or two, and they got right back up, and they went back into the race. But by the time that they spent two seconds falling and getting back up again, the race was already won. And so what ended up happening, what was interesting as you watched the remainder of the race, is the American skaters no longer skated to the professional level that they were accustomed to. They started getting slower and slower and slower. Until finally the number one team, the Canadian team, lapped them in the middle of the race. You see what happened? They lost confidence. A small defeat grew to be a much larger defeat because the team no longer believed that the race was winnable. In our Christian walk, I've found that discouragement tends to go hand in hand with hardships. There are days and difficult nights, and sometimes it even stretches on into weeks and months and even into years where you start asking the question, is it going to get any better? The road's filled with hardship. In my own life, I remember several years ago, I received probably the three hardest pieces of information I'd ever received in my life in the course of one week. One, two, three. And that third hit, it felt like a knockout blow. And then, you know what your mind does? It starts going to dark places when you're hit by these things. Uh, Pastor and writer Chuck Swindoll shares this, when a tsunami of suffering crushes our comfortable, well-ordered lives, we can feel betrayed, 
slighted, even cheated by God, instead of trusting that God is accomplishing something good in our lives, we can start to believe that he has it in for us, that he delights in causing us pain. Is that true? Does God delight in causing you pain? I think in our best moments, we, we shouldn't, we couldn't go there. But this is precisely why discouragement comes and it hits you like a Mack truck. It, it causes you to question those basic assumptions that you hold near and dear to the heart. Now, I'm a, an avid reader, and um, I'm generally a guy that knows the truth. I read a lot of books. I've read through the Bible multiple times. When something is going on in my life, my brain quickly goes to a solution and says, this is what God's word has to say about this. But I got to tell you, sometimes that's not good enough. Sometimes I've needed to hear the truth come to me from a friend, from a mentor, uh, from someone who is saying the same exact thing that I know. But coming from then, it moves from the place of the brain down into the recesses of the heart. I start to actually feel it. I start to believe it. It's that outside voice that tells you, get back up and race. Start racing again like you mean it. I think that this was Paul's intention when he wrote this letter to this church. You know, they'd been through the ringer. They knew the truth. Paul's restating the truth, but now he's talking to the heart and he's saying, look, it's time to get going again. He moves from a, a preacher now to a fatherly figure. He was a great shepherd. Paul knows how to say the hard things, but he also knows how to come alongside with gentleness to lift someone up. And this morning as he speaks to this church, as he empowers them, he gives them four messages of encouragement that I think all of us need to hear when we are personally going through things like discouragement. The first message is right there in verse 13. And it's a very simple message that most of us know and agree with. God loves you. God loves you. Look at verse 13. But we always ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers, beloved by the Lord. Isn't that a special title, beloved? You look at verse 16 now, and he reiterates the same message. Now may our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father, who what? Loved us and gave us eternal comfort and good hope through grace. It's interesting how life works and, and when you start to realize how spiritual this life really is and the fact that we're in a war with an enemy who hates us and does not have a good plan for our lives. Satan is an opportunist. He doesn't cause us to question our basic assumptions while we feel strong and confident. He doesn't tend to come to you and say, you need to question God's love while everything's going well in your life. No. He waits for those moments when you feel completely rocked. And then he launches his assaults. One of his greatest strategies is to cause you to question God's stated disposition toward you. 
God said through the prophet Jeremiah, I have loved you with an everlasting love. Satan comes into our moment of despair and he says, well, if God really loved you, he wouldn't allow you to go through this. And it's in that moment of discouragement that those words start to ring true. And we say to ourselves, well, well maybe, maybe that's right. Maybe if God loved me, I wouldn't be going through this right now. And you might be the person that even has your theological ducks in a row. You might come to me and ask me that question, and I might come back at you and say, well, answer your own question, and then you're going to get very uh, tactical with me and say, well, because he's using my trials to shape me and mold me to be more like Jesus. However, Satan wouldn't be the great deceiver if his methods weren't tried and true. He knows that when he's assaulting you in that way, that the truth has remained just an intellectual ascent at that point for you. It hasn't migrated down to the heart. Well, how does truth move from here to here? Well, Scripture tells us, or it doesn't just say to us, God loves you, but it demonstrates the love of God to us in ways that God worked through the gospel message. See, when I'm looking at this passage, I don't see this love that the passage is talking about as the general sense of God's love, that he loves all people in all times in history throughout the world, that sense of love where God is showing his love by holding the universe together, by causing the sun to rise and the rain to fall. Not only made a a world for us that's habitable, but he made a world for us that's beautiful. That kind of love? No. I think that what Paul's talking about here is God's saving love. The pursuing love of God. So the next time that you ask yourself the question, well, how do I know that God really loves me? You have to go back to the gospel. That's the demonstration of God's love. That's God's love in action. The gospel that says that you know he loves you. Why? Because he sent his only son into the world to die for you. Romans 5.8 You know he loves you because he made you alive in Christ. The Bible says that before God entered into your world through Jesus, you were dead, but he made you alive. Ephesians 2.4 and 5 You know he loves you. Because he adopted you as his very own child. 1 John 3.1 Believer, you are deeply loved. You are loved by a love that is other, otherworldly. You are loved by a love that is undying, unchanging, uninfluenced, undeserved. And even when it feels like the odds are stacked against you, the Bible says go back to that truth. Remember that God loves you. And that truth, that measureless love, that matchless love will stabilize your heart. He moves from the message of God loves you then to another message, which is this, God chose you. Let's move on in verses 13 and 14. The text tells us, But we ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers, beloved by the Lord, Because what? God chose you as the first fruits to be saved through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth. 
To this he called you through our gospel so that you may obtain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. And when you look there at verse 13, that, that expression, God chose you as the first fruits to be saved, I would like to submit to you probably would be better translated, God chose you from the beginning to be saved. It's uh, a message that's in line with what Paul said in Ephesians 1.4. He chose us in him before the foundation of the world. Think about that. Now, the word chose is not a robotic term. It's not a harsh term. It's actually very personal. It means to take for oneself or to oneself. So God, before the foundation of the world, before time and eternity began, really, time began, he had a relational love towards you, the Bible says, and he chose you to be a part of his family. In his mercy and grace, he set his affection upon you, and then later when the time was right, he savingly drew you to himself. This is called the doctrine of election. Now, far from being, like I said, a harsh robotic doctrine, I want you to understand this in highly relational terms. I read a story this week that helped me to envision this a little bit. It was about a woman named Joyce Dowdery, and she was traveling to an orphanage in Ukraine. And it was there that she saw a little two-year-old girl named Kristen. Now, Kristen was a little girl that many people in Ukraine would not have adopted. She had a hemangioma on her face. But as Joyce looked at Kristen, Joyce saw a beautiful little girl behind the hemangioma. She reflected on her first thoughts as she looked at Kristen. She said, uh, Kristen's eyes were so alert that I just kept watching her. There was something special that that tumor could not hide. I could have taken any of the children I saw home with me. At the same time, I knew if I adopted Kristen, she'd have more than a new start. She'd have a new life. The owner of the adoption agency describes the, the child's circumstances. She said, in the Ukraine, children are often throwaways. Most Ukrainian families are afraid of a child with any kind of a disability. Mothers take them to an orphanage or abandon them in a public place, walk away, and they never look back again. But Joyce chose Kristen. She brought Kristen home to her family and to her heart, and then in November of 2004, a surgeon removed the hemangioma. Uh, there's only thin scars that are still there where once a huge tumor had existed. Uh, but more importantly, the change in location also brought a dramatic change in the person of Kristen. She chatters constantly. She walks around the house constantly saying, I love you, I love you, I love you, to her new mother. When I think about this story, I think about the same way that the Heavenly Father chose or placed his love on us while we were still unlovely. Our Heavenly Father chose us, adopted us, gave us new life in Jesus. And we can only love him today because he first gave us the opportunity and he amazingly continues to love us. 
When you look at verse 14, Paul explains that everything about your salvation from start to finish, whether uh, you go back into eternity past when God chose you or into the present moment, it talks about the Spirit sanctifying you, which means the Spirit is continuing God's progressive work of changing you. Or you then move forward into future history, the consummation of history, where Paul says that you will share in the glory of Jesus from start to finish. It's a work of God, is what the Bible says. Your salvation, then, if it is a work of God from start to finish, is guaranteed. 100% guaranteed. God says, I started this, I'm progressively working on it, and guess what? I'm going to finish it. The doctrine of election is an important doctrine when you are feeling discouraged. Why? What happens in those places of discouragement? Maybe while you are discouraged, you even have become discouraged because there's a reoccurring sin issue in your life or something along those lines. And you know what can happen to the mind when that starts occurring. You go off in all kinds of different rabbit trails. Well, I must not be good enough for God. I've sure messed up this time. How could God possibly forgive someone like me? I'm a nobody. What could I possibly offer God that would give him any reason to to forgive me? And the answer has always been, what can you offer God? Nothing. Why? Because God doesn't want anything from you. He chose you because he is good and kind and merciful. And he intends to finish what he started. I find great hope in that final destination Paul's words in verse 14, to this he called you through our gospel so that you may obtain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, when you read that passage, you you might be asking yourself, what does it mean to obtain the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ? Even what does glory mean? Well, glory means honor. So basically what Paul's sharing here is, is the idea that you get to share in the victory or the the sense of honor that will come when Jesus returns to rule the universe. It's that uh, feeling that we all recently shared when Tom Brady led the Patriots to the sixth Super Bowl title. Now someone outside of New England might say to you, what did you do? And... uh, (laughs) And we can honestly say nothing other than I aligned myself, right, with the right team. Not Kansas City, but the Patriots. (laughs) But we share in the honor, don't we? Bring out the duck boats. Fill the streets of Boston. New Englanders walking around with their heads held high, wearing their favorite Patriots jersey. Some of us even might choose to grow out a beard like Julian Edelman. I got to tell you, friends, the Super Bowl is going to feel like a schoolyard game of rock, paper, scissors compared to when Jesus returns and he puts history to rest. With him, we will share in the defeat of evil 
the end of human suffering, the vindication of the righteous, the elevation of the lowly, and the final enemy itself, death, will be defeated. Church, that's the real Super Bowl. You get to share in that. Why? Because God chose you in eternity past because He's working right now on your salvation because He'll bring it to completion. But don't take this doctrine too far. Don't take that doctrine and say to yourself, well, then that means that I really just don't have to do anything and I don't have a part to play. I can just sit back and coast while God does all of the work. Well, the Bible never presents the doctrine of election in that way. Indeed, your choices in life to follow Jesus, to not follow Jesus, to remain faithful, to turn away, those, my friends, are real, authentic choices that you are making in real time right now. That's why Paul says something like this in verse 15. So then, brothers, stand firm and hold to the traditions that you were taught by us, either by our spoken word or by our letter. How does the Christian face this sometimes difficult life with stability? Well, Paul says, stand firm, hold to. The idea is that if you know good biblical doctrine, you already have what you need. You don't need something new or different or fresh. You already have the powerful, life-giving message that God uses to transform lives. You have the Word of God which tells you God's moral will. So how do I stand firm? Well, first I want to submit to you that it has to begin by knowing what I'm standing firm on well. One of my big concerns right now is a lot of people aren't walking well with God because they just haven't put in the time to know the Bible. But if we put in more time to know the Bible, then we would know what God's moral will is. You can't stand firm on what you don't know. Standing firm also means sinking your roots deeply into your convictions. We have a shrub out back, Katie and I, and uh, we moved it from one place in the lawn to another. This shrub, we have, uh, we translocated it probably, what, two years ago now, and it keeps falling over. Uh, we try to tie it up. We try to put rocks around it to strengthen it, but the thing just keeps falling down. Why? Well, it hasn't sunk its roots deep enough. The top's way heavier than the root system beneath it. I wonder if that's why a lot of Christians fall into sinful habits and patterns. Because they have a top-heavy understanding of what God's Word says, but they haven't sunk their roots deep into the convictions of it. What do I mean by this? I mean that you might know something is wrong, but you might not be convinced that doing the right thing will satisfy you. For example... Say you're single. You might say, I know that the Bible says that living together and having sex before marriage is wrong. But at the same time in your heart, you also believe that I would be happier if I was doing that. Friends, do you see the shallowness of those roots? The shallowness of the conviction? On the one hand, you say something's true. On the other hand, 
you aren't convinced that it's the right way. I want to submit that you will only stand firm if you sink the roots deeper. How do you do that? You learn to love God's moral will. Psalm 119.97 Oh, how I love your law. It is my meditation all the day. Psalm 1 verse 2 says that the righteous person delights in the law of the Lord. You will not delight in something if you are not convinced that it will satisfy you, lead you to the best sort of life possible, fulfill your desires. In fact, you know what will end up happening if you have this uh, rootless conviction? You will start resenting the truth. You will say in your heart, I know that this is the right thing to do, but I wish that I could do something else. And what ends up happening? Well, you end up doing what you wish you could do. You do what you love, is what the Bible says. So can I encourage you to sink the roots deeper? Start asking deeper questions about the moral law. If God's the creator of the universe, then surely he knew, knows how he made me tick, right? And if he wired me in this way, then if I obey his moral law, it will lead to blessing in my life, good things in my life. It will ultimately satisfy me. See, the Bible tells us that there is a competing interest in the world. There's a worldly perception. There's the biblical. Maybe we're buying into a cultural value that isn't really as satisfying as people say it is. Indeed, maybe certain biblical norms are not prudish or old-fashioned, but they actually work. I think the encouragement in Paul's exhortation to stand firm is this. You can do it. You can do it. God's not asking you to do something that you're incapable of. And I don't know about you, but sometimes I need to hear a message like that. I remember my freshman year of high school, I received a message like that. I was in the conference championship. I was posted to swim the final heat of the 200-yard freestyle. And I think my coach could sense that I was kind of shaking like a twig in my Speedo. So just before I got up to the block to swim, he came and he put his hand on my shoulder and he looked me in the eye. You know what he said? You can do this. You have the right to stand up on this block and swim in this race. You've put in over a thousand miles of swimming this season. You've raced against strong competitors. I want you to go over to the pool, act a little cocky, splash some water on yourself, and I want you to stand up on that block like you're supposed to be on that block, and then I want you to swim the race that you were supposed to swim. You know what happened? I swam the best time I'd swam all season and won the conference championship. When we hear a message like that, you can stand firm it gives us the confidence to walk into the reality or the truth that God's already said we can do. How do I know I can do that? Well, God loves you. God chose you. God's given you his moral word. You can do it. As we move on, the final encouragement is 
one of prayer. Paul tells the church that God is working through prayer. In verses 16 and 17, he relays a prayer. Now may our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father who loved us and gave us eternal comfort and good hope through grace comfort your hearts and establish them in every good work and word. Now notice what Paul doesn't pray for. He doesn't pray, Lord, let the suffering stop. Let it go away. In fact, it seems that Paul's praying, let the suffering continue to do what you intend it to do. Remember what we discussed back in the first chapter? Why God allows pain and suffering to enter our lives? It's because he has a big vision for your life. His big vision for your life is that you would grow to look like Jesus. God wants you to be the person that he always intended you to be. And the template for your growth, he places a picture of Jesus next to you so that you would grow to look like him and walk like him and talk like him and act like him. You would be that special edition person that God always intended you to be who looks like Jesus. And trials and suffering are one of the tools in his tool belt. So Paul prays. Now, what is prayer? If you're going to be honest with yourself this morning, you're going to say praying is hard for me. It's hard for every Christian. Uh, I think sometimes it's hard because we don't quite understand the purpose of prayer. Why, Why am I doing this? And so it makes it difficult for us to pray into our situations because we don't know why we're doing it in the first place. Well, let's talk about what prayer is not. Prayer is not about getting God lined up with our plans. I think most of the time when we pray, that's the the end that we're praying to. God, line up with what I want and with what I'm doing. One author writes, I will be frank and confess if I really thought I could change the mind of God by praying, I would abstain. It's almost as if you were to introduce someone who is utterly ignorant of electronics to a nuclear weapon facility and you let that person in the operations room, though they are untrained, and you tell them to go in and push whatever buttons that they think is appropriate. By so doing, you might precipitate an accidental explosion. There is comfort for the child of God in being assured that our prayer will not change God's mind. This is not what is involved in prayer. We are not in danger of precipitating explosions by some rash desire on our part. So far from nuclear ba- uh, setting off nuclear blasts, prayer, I would submit to you, is about two things. One, it is about experiencing God's plans in your life. Two, it is about furthering God's plans. That's why we should pray. Lord's Prayer, right? Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. God turns his plans into reality by listening to and responding to prayers. That's why Paul prays in this text. He says God comfort them. God strengthened them to walk in good works and good words. That's what he's praying for, God's plans. What does that mean when I'm struggling? 
Well, it means that I can keep praying and trusting God through my prayers, but I have to remember that it's not working out my plans. It's him working out his plans. So the sweet spot in prayer is to line myself up with God's plans. And what are those plans for you? Well, we talked about some of them. It's to make you look more like Jesus. He wants you to feel deep satisfaction and love for him. He wants you to experience the peace and surpassing uh, the peace that surpasses understanding, not by avoiding, not peace by avoiding suffering, but peace in the midst of suffering. And I would submit to you that God wants to use your suffering for a reason. And I think one of the big reasons is to bless others who are going through suffering. I often read 2 Corinthians 2, 3, and 4 to those who are suffering. Listen to these words. The apostle says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort, who comforts us in all affliction, so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. If you want to go back and look at that text one more time, 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 3 and 4. When I was a younger lad, one of my favorite places to go was the hills and forests of West Virginia. Beautiful place, and um, me and my brothers, we would spend weeks on end there and go off exploring in the woods, building forts, swinging on vines, and of course, building small fires out of sight of my papa. Now, while we were off in our little Robinson Crusoe ventures, we would often come across these little animals called box turtles, and I don't think they make their way up this far north, but they're wonderful little creatures. Uh, it's always fun to watch their behavior. If you've ever interacted with one of these turtles, when you first go up to the turtle and grab it, what does it do? It goes right into its shell. And I've got to tell you, they can close that shell really tight. You're not getting in there, right? So the only way to get the turtle out of the shell is to do what? Well, be gentle and patient with it. It's only when the, the turtle begins to believe or trust that it is safe with you, that it can entrust itself to you, that the turtle comes out of the shell. Some of us in our Christian walk have gone into our shell. We've gone through discouragement. We have Stopped believing that God has our best interests in mind. But this is really what it all boils down to, isn't it? Either God means what he says, or he doesn't. Either he is trustworthy with your pain, or he isn't. If we struggle to believe the Bible's message this morning, God loves you. God has chosen you. He hasn't asked you to do something you can't handle. He will meet you in your prayers. Then we're staying in our shell. The way you come out of this shell is by saying, God, I believe. I believe that you do love me. I believe that you did choose me. 
I believe that you are strengthening me to handle this particular situation and that you will meet me in that place of prayer so that your plans become reality in my world. So church, if you're in your shell right now, can I challenge you to do something? Open it up. Allow God to invade your world and walk in light of His world. Shall we pray?